You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. My colleague and dear friend, Steve Morrison, and I are joined today by the one and only Cheryl Gay Stolberg of the New York Times. Cheryl, of course, covered health from 1997 to 2002 for the New York Times. She covered the White House and Congress, national politics, and now she's returned as a Washington correspondent to cover a broad array of things. She also, as a reporter for the LA Times, shared in two Pulitzer Prize awards. Cheryl, welcome today. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to join. So I want to ask you, the FDA has just revoked the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine that it issued in March. This has been a long and tortured and fascinating drama over hydroxychloroquine. What lessons have we learned from this saga? Is it just one sign of a steady and deliberate downgrading of science and public health between the White House and some really key public health officials? Well, it certainly is a clash between uh, science and politics, and one of many such clashes during the era of President Trump. I think you could look at it two ways. The FDA's kind of mad dash to approve a waiver for hydroxychloroquine and its sister drug, chloroquine, some would say was a triumph of politics over science. President Trump was touting these drugs as a game changer for the coronavirus pandemic without any evidence. Some of his own administration officials like Rick Bright, who was the head of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, BARDA, uh, was balking at this. And the FDA nonetheless issued this emergency waiver. On the other hand, the revoking of the waiver could be viewed as a triumph of science over politics. I just got off the phone with Greg Walden. He's a Republican congressman, the ranking member of the Energy and Commerce Committee. And I asked him, you know, do you think the FDA did the right thing? And he said, yes, I trust Dr. Hahn, the FDA commissioner. I, I think he operates according to the science. And if we didn't have good data, we shouldn't be allowing this. On the other hand, I talked to Peter Navarro, President Trump's trade advisor, and he is livid over this. He's a big booster of hydroxychloroquine. He called it a blind side by the deep state. Can you explain to us and our listeners how Peter Navarro, who's an economic policy expert, is involved in the debate over a drug like hydroxychloroquine and its sister drug chloroquines? Well, President Trump put him in charge of the supply chain. And as we know, um, early in the pandemic, there was a big shortage of a lot of things. There was a shortage of nasal swabs and all sorts of materials needed for coronavirus testing. And Navarro got involved in pandemic preparedness. And I believe when Bayer Pharmaceuticals offered a donation of chloroquine, which is hydroxychloroquine's sister drug, Navarro may have handled the logistics for that donation. But to a larger point, I think Navarro's involvement speaks in a way to just how ill-prepared this White House was for a pandemic. We know that President Trump disbanded a pandemic preparedness group that was inside the White House in the National Security Council. So they were kind of left 
relying on who they had at hand. This is Steve. Weren't they also desperate to find some therapy that they could hang on to? Of course, remdesivir came forward and, and did win approval. And in some ways that put a different light now on hydroxychloroquine, which is used legitimately for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. But when used in this way for COVID, has very high dangers of cardiac implications, right? So that's been at the root of the concern that Fauci and Rick Barta and others have expressed, as I understand it. Right. I think we have to look at this whole arc of this story in context. The president accepted this donation from Bayer sometime around March 17th, just days after he declared a, a national emergency over coronavirus. So the nation was really panicked. You had people in New York, you know, dying in hospital corridors, and the president was desperate to show that he was doing something. Uh, you had Fox News personalities trumpeting the drug on television, and that was the environment in which the FDA acted. So I think there was intense pressure, or at least the president felt intense pressure to show that he was doing something. That initial drug, the chloroquine that was donated by Bayer, came from a factory in Pakistan. It was not approved by the FDA. So you can imagine this created a big uproar. Subsequent to that, other companies started donating hydroxychloroquine, which is viewed by doctors as safer than chloroquine. And the dust-up continued, though. It, it was almost like the die was cast from the outset. The FDA gave an emergency waiver for this unapproved drug that had come from Pakistan in the middle of a pandemic. People were panicking. And President Trump was embracing it and Fox News was touting it. And so this was like the perfect storm of ingredients to make a huge public health controversy. And I think we've seen that controversy kind of play out from there. This has become a politically fraught endeavor. So what does your reporting on this these days tell you about this current situation? What are you finding? You're, I know you're doing a lot of reporting right. on this so, right now. Well, I think that even though the number of studies seem to suggest that the drug is kind of at best useless and at worst possibly harmful or maybe harmful, researchers, including Francis Collins, at the head of the National Institutes of Health, say that the jury is still out. I talked to Dr. Collins yesterday, and he told me that clinical trials run by the NIH will still be going on into hydroxychloroquine. That is important to have randomized, controlled clinical trials to show whether or not this drug is or is not useful. Dr. Collins told me that it was really important to have randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trials into whether hydroxychloroquine is effective for hospitalized patients, other research into whether it could be a preventative for coronavirus infection is also continuing. And I think what what scientists and experts have always said is that fine to give out these drugs, but do it in the context of a clinical trial. Don't just let doctors prescribe them, you know, willy nilly. Let's do it in the context of research so that we can determine whether or not they are in fact useful. So Cheryl, where are you landing ultimately on this question of whether this decision to revoke the emergency use authorization 
represents a rebalancing back in favor of science. Do you seeing it that way? I tend as a reporter not to land on one side of of an issue or another. I do think it was the FDA and BARDA asserting themselves in saying, look, we have enough data now to raise questions about what we did and it's time to pull it back. Whether that indicates a broader triumph for science, I think has yet to be determined. But in this one instance, the scientists certainly exerted their authority. Well, you've written about the shift in sentiment across party lines about coronavirus and the pandemic. There's a fatigue and exhaustion that appears to have set in. Have we now moved to a point of resignation? I think, honestly, we have, frankly. I talked to Ashish Jha, who's the Harvard School of Public Health. He's actually soon to become the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Hmm. And he told me that he said to someone recently offhandedly, oh, we'll have 200,000 deaths in the next 60 days. And the person said, what? Really? And and he was like, of course. You know, we, we see a doubling. You know, we're seeing a doubling time of the pandemic. And he said that people seem to have accepted this idea that we're just going to have a certain base level of sickness and death from this pandemic. And you know, we can't just hunker down and be shut down as a country forever. So we're going to have to come to some kind of balance, some kind of accommodation. And I I do think people are kind of inured to it. The daily death counts keep going up. And after a while, people are just kind of used to it. Steve? That's a sobering reality. It is. That we're beginning to accommodate ourselves to living indefinitely with this sort of steady burn of continued high numbers of new cases and mounting deaths, that we're getting numbed to this as we move forward. I think also that the disappearance of the coronavirus task force from the public sphere may be contributing to that. In a way, you know, we would get these daily briefings all the time, and people were really focused on it. And now other things are going on in the country, equally, if not more compelling and sobering, uh, namely the protests over racial violence by police and systemic racism more broadly. And so the country's attention is perhaps turning. You know, I get the sense that a lot of people who are only following COVID loosely, which is hard to even imagine, but people who are following it, trying to put it out of their minds, they're following it to the extent of whether, you know, their favorite sport is going to come back or not. And and the players in various sports are saying, well, we're not really sure if this is good for our health or not to start playing. You know, that's sort of driving the, the coronavirus debate right now, as opposed to legitimate health concerns of the entire public. Yeah, I think sometimes when I don't want to sound too much like a pop, you know, psychologist here, but that when things get really overwhelming, people tend to focus on sort of something narrow that they can grasp. I remember when during the war in Afghanistan, you know, there were all these people dying, right? But the Taliban blew up these ancient Buddhas and people like really seized on that. And it almost seemed crazy, like all these people were dying, but, you know, they blew up these statues and that's what people were concerned about. And for some reason, that that comes to mind in your sports analogy. 
And I think also for the players, it's a workplace issue. It is a real issue for the players, just like it's an issue for workers all across the country who are being asked to go back to work and who are frightened that going back to work could endanger their health. Cheryl, one of the things that I think is contributing also to this deepening complacency is that it's a very confused situation we face. We have over 20 states that are reaching new high points that are reopening and people are puzzling saying, how can you be reopening when you're growing at this rate very visibly, your hospitalization and fatality rates are going up. And then you've got another 20 states that are either plateaued or declining and and nobody can adequately sort of explain most of this or all of it, certainly. And I think it leaves people in a very confused position where you've got all of the earlier lockdown habits and those are we're supposed to continue in those many of those habits, but now we're moving to reopening and the signaling and messaging are completely confused. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some way we have regional pandemics or even local pandemics, right? Pandemics within a pandemic, And it's not the same. It's not uniform across the country. And you're also seeing some places uh, that were shut down, you know, whose economies were shut down, that were not suffering as much as places like, say, New York or Louisiana or some of those other places where there was, you know, really a, a high level of disease early on in the pandemic. And so, you know, places that aren't seeing that kind of disease burden, we're getting frustrated and wanting to open up. We may now be seeing kind of a strange reversal, like some of those places that were frustrated and wanted to open up have opened up. Now they're, you know, diseases and spiking in places like Arizona and I think North Carolina and maybe Utah, yet places like New York are steady stasis or even declining. Right, right. Let's move on to a related question around these triple crises, what some are calling a syndemic, where you have this simultaneous interrelated crises in health, in the economy, and in terms of racism and police brutality. All of these exact a disproportionate burden and toll on people of color, brown and black people in poverty. None are going to be resolved anytime soon. What do you think this means long term? looking forward in terms of how we think about the interlocking aspects of these three crises and what we need to do about them. How do we think into the future? I think that policymakers across the philosophical spectrum agree that they need to be addressed. And in some ways, this era reminds me of the fight in the 1960s for voting rights, where People saw figures like John Lewis, now the congressman from Georgia, getting beaten up by police, by white police on a bridge in Selma, and they saw dogs being unleashed on black marchers. And the rest of the country kind of rose up and said, this is enough. Not to put too fine a point on it, white people rose up and said, this is enough. We have to do something about this. And I think we're kind of seeing the same thing happening now. You're seeing Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, talking about putting a police reform bill, you know, on the floor. We know that Congress has already ordered the federal government to at least start providing data on racial demographics within the coronavirus crisis. I think states are now required to provide 
that data. So I think little by little, policymakers are going to be forced to address the one thing that kind of unifies all these crises, which is systemic racism. I don't want to make any predictions because we're in such a fractured moment right now. There's so much animosity in Washington uh, between Republicans and Democrats that, you know, I wonder if anything can get done. But I do think that we're undergoing kind of an awakening that is at least forcing policymakers to think and talk about these problems in new ways. You know, Yale professor Todd Gitlin, who's written a lot about the 60s, points out that the civil rights movement turned into the anti-war movement, then it turned into the counterculture. He thinks that this, the movement that we're seeing now, protesting against racism and police brutality, could turn into action in the form of people mobilizing to vote in the November elections and that we could see a bigger turnout than ever before. What do you think about that? I think that could be right. I mean, in uh, 2015 and 2016, I was a national correspondent for The Times, and I I spent a lot of time in swing states like Pennsylvania and Ohio talking to voters. And I was really struck, frankly, by the apathy among Democrats, and in particular, young people who are core part of Democrats' base and younger African-Americans, also a core part of Democrats' base, many of them said, you know, I'm not going to vote. I don't think the government can do anything for me. I don't like either candidate, etc. And we saw this swell of enthusiasm on the right and among people who had never voted before, who voted for President Trump. I do think that some of those people now are realizing what happens when you don't vote, that if you don't vote, your voice doesn't get heard. And that there will be, I think, a rush to the polls in November. And I think we're already seeing that. If you looked at the recent elections in Georgia, where people waited outside in the pouring rain for hours and hours so that they could vote. In a primary. In a primary. Exactly. Exactly. So to me, I have not seen this kind of intensity of protests frankly, in my life or in recent history, since Trump was elected and we saw the Women's March. Mm -hmm. And this reminds me of that, but maybe even more so. Because it's sustained and at a much larger scale. Yeah. Yeah. And because of the diversity of those who are participating. I mean, my hometown, I grew up in Merrick, New York. It's a Mm -hmm. town on Long Island. It's just another kind of sleepy suburban town. 5,000 people turned out to protest on Merrick Road (laughs) in my hometown. My mother was trying to go to the grocery store, not realizing, you know, she's older. And she got stuck for two hours in the car trying (laughs) to get home. Like, you know, we haven't seen that before. Protests reaching those kinds of places. That's for sure. Is that what gives you the greatest hope, Cheryl? I mean, what you're seeing now in terms of the participation out in the streets in 200 cities in the United States? Yeah. I mean, I'm always a believer in participation. I mean, like I said before, as a reporter, I really don't take positions on issues. But one thing I'm not afraid to say is that I really fiercely believe that the more people who get involved in the public sphere, who vote, who, you know, are engaged in civic activities from whatever political perspective they come 
the better off the country is. So I think that does give me hope that people are paying attention, at least, and they seem to want to do something about some of these problems. Cheryl, in terms of your reporting, you're trying to discern the intersection of health, politics, and culture and make sense of it all for us who read your work. Generally, what are you really honing in on? Well, obviously, I'm interested in what lessons we can learn from the response or, frankly, the failed response to the pandemic. How can we be better prepared as a society? Why were we so unprepared? That's kind of the, you know, the big picture. I'm interested in the quest for a vaccine, the quest for some kind of cure, and how will society manage until that happens? Um, In the more short term, I am interested in exploring the effect of what I might call the loss of the bully pulpit, meaning that there really is no kind of central communicator out there giving the public a message about what to do. And a lot of people are really confused. You know, you have public health officials like Dr. Fauci saying it's very important to wear masks. Social distancing is very important. This is what he said about the protests. And yet President Trump is convening tens of thousands of people at a rally in Tulsa and making them sign a waiver, saying that they won't hold him liable if they get sick. So I think that to me is actually the ultimate example of a confusing and conflicting message. When you have the nation's top infectious disease expert on one hand telling people they need to wear masks and social distance, and you have the president convening people at a rally. Well, you know, it's interesting. John Barry, you know, who wrote the great book about the Spanish flu in 1918, told Steve and I on this podcast that the number one lesson that we needed to learn from the Spanish flu is that it's critical, critical that our leaders at all levels of government need to tell the truth. And do you think that there's an absence of that? I think that there is certainly an absence of clear and consistent and trustworthy information. I think at the very top of the government, it is no secret that President Trump frequently states things that are untrue. I think the Washington Post has what they call the lie tracker. They've, you know, tracked thousands of things that, you know, what I would call false statements. The Times, our editors are are more reluctant to use the word lie. Uh, We've come under some criticism for that. But I would say that, you know, President Trump is often saying things that are inaccurate. For instance, at the outset of the pandemic, he promised that anyone who wanted a test could get one. That wasn't true. He promised that there would be drive-by, you know, testing centers around the country and parking lots and places like Walgreens and Target and Walmart. Um, That turned out not to be true. As we discussed earlier, he promoted an unproven drug, hydroxychloroquine, as a treatment. We know that the jury is still out. So I think that that has become a real challenge. The the president's statements are a real challenge to the goal of others in government who want to put out clear and consistent and trustworthy information. 
because they have to deal with a president who is frankly chaotic in his messaging. Cheryl, you've given us more than the time that we thought you had allotted. And so thank you so much. We're really grateful that you could come and be with us today and share with us the work that you're doing, which is so important. And thank you for always sharing with me the work that you're doing, which is important. Thanks for being with us today, Cheryl. 